This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara Ongwele, Associate Director at JMU Civic, and co-hosting along with me today is Ryan Ritter. He's a sophomore majoring in history and international affairs at JMU. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Kara. Nice to be here. How are you doing this week? Uh, doing great. Um, trying to keep up with the times, but that's... <laughs> everybody. Also co-hosting today is Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director of JMU Civic. Hi, Abe. How are you doing? Doing well, Kara. How are you today? Doing well, all things considered. All things considered. (laughs) Um, We are just delighted to have with us uh, Ethan Zuckerman. He is Associate Professor of Public Policy, Communication, and Information at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, He's also co-founder of the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure, which is a new research group that is studying and building alternatives to the existing commercial internet. Um, We're also going to be talking about his new book just out. It's called Mistrust, Why Losing Faith in Institutions Provides the Tools to Transform Them. Thank you so much for joining us, Ethan. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Kara, and it's great to meet you, uh, Ryan and Abe. Uh, Ethan, your book makes evident that mistrust has permeated American society since its founding, as far back as the events of Shays Rebellion, and has had a lasting effect on the American political landscape ever since. Of course, we are in a moment in which trust in institutions are not only low, but also deeply polarized. There are also deep issues over how to address not only mistrust in institutions, but also how to address those public problems those institutions are meant to solve. The greatest divide is between institutionalists and insurrectionists. Can you start by talking about institutionalism versus insurrectionism and give us some examples from historical and contemporary politics? So these are two terms that I borrowed from Chris Hayes, um, who is a very thoughtful commentator on MSNBC. Um, He wrote an excellent book called Twilight of the Elites. And in that book, he introduces these two terms to sort of talk about could we have a more complex discussion of politics in the United States beyond just left and right? And he ends up suggesting that we need this other axis of institutionalist versus insurrectionist. Institutionalists believe that the way to change systems that aren't working for us is to go work within an institution, make it stronger, make it work better than it currently works. Insurrectionists believe that in some cases those institutions are just broken and they're no longer fit for purpose. And we might need to think about replacing that institution with something completely new. I think you can see the tension between institutionalists and insurrectionists in some of the recent presidential elections. Um, Hillary Clinton is a a classic institutionalist. She's a left institutionalist. Um, She ran in 2016 against a number of right institutionalists like Jeb Bush, but they ended up losing out to a right insurrectionist, Donald Trump. And Trump is his own unique case, but certainly early on what he was saying was, look, I'm entirely outside of the DC system, but I know how it works. I'm coming to drain the swamp and therefore don't trust any of those institutions of DC. 
We do have left insurrectionists, the Occupy movement, where people started occupying public spaces and ending, you know, asking for for really something as broad as ending neoliberal capitalism as we know it. That is an insurrectionist left-wing movement. And one of the things that I was trying to do in this book was actually remind people that Trump and Trumpism uh, don't have a monopoly on insurrection. Insurrection can actually be very helpful in as much as it allows us to look at institutions that are broken and imagine and build things that come in their place. Where this gets tricky, of course, is right now the word insurrection brings us all automatically to January 6th. And what happened on January 6th was quite different from what I'm talking about. Um, For me, while it is rooted in mistrust, it has a lot to do with how mistrust has been weaponized in the United States over the last five years um, as a way of motivating um, the the far right to uh, to try to keep Donald Trump in power. It's interesting how you can see that um, this institutionalist and insurrectionist term, it seems to be kind of a hot word if you think on the opposite or hot terms, if you think on the opposite side of the spectrum for maybe spectrum for maybe Chris Hayes, I know that um, Ben Shapiro, even in one of his recent books, he wrote about, you know, that kind of dichotomy between the two. And uh, thank you so much for your answer. If I could just move to a quick follow up concerning the general mistrust among the American public, I wanted to ask, so how can a phenomenon like mistrust in political institutions be turned into a tool to transform these institutions that have maybe failed or are no longer addressing the needs they set out to provide? Sure. Let's talk really briefly about the trend, because, of course, it's a long, slow trend. One of the ideas that I've been trying to bring out in the book is that um, mistrust in institutions didn't happen overnight. It's not a function of the Trump administration. It's not a function of... um, you know, the internet sort of coming on and suddenly having an explosion of different information. In fact, the first really big drop in trust in institutions that we see in survey data happens during the 1970s. Um, We gain some trust back during the Reagan presidency. We gain some in the Clinton presidency. We have a wave of trust that goes along with the country's reaction to 9-11 But we've been in a sustained level of very low trust for at least the last 10 years. And so the entirety of the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency, those are very low um, trust moments. So this is not just a passing phase. And it's also one whose roots are 50 years ago. We've got to figure out how to come up with a better answer than let's just rebuild trust in institutions and everything will be okay. That is too often what those of us who teach civics or who study political science find ourselves doing, essentially saying, let's just recruit the next generation into these systems. I actually think we need to go further and say, let's ask a much harder question. Are these systems reformable through incremental change? Or are we looking at systems where incremental change is no longer plausible? And I would argue that one of the best examples of this recently um, might be the defund the police movement. There are a number of communities, I'm certainly not saying all communities, but there's a number of communities where police trust in law enforcement is so low. And it is so low usually because there have been decades of incremental attempts at reform that have not gone very far. And you now have 
generations of people who simply do not view law enforcement as treating them fairly or meeting their needs. That is a moment at which radically rethinking law enforcement, thinking about the idea of having a much smaller armed force complemented by people who are much more analogous to social workers or domestic violence prevention workers, that's the sort of radical rethinking that has to happen. Now, you know, this is the problem with insurrectionism. People get really scared by this. This became a rallying cry for the right. They're going to defund the police. Chaos will ensue. What's actually happening there is a pretty thoughtful conversation about what you do with an institution that is in a true trust crisis in many communities around the United States. I wanted to, you know, press a little bit more on uh, current events. You had mentioned this earlier, but obviously this is a huge thing when we think of mistrust. And I wanted to ask, how do you view the recent violent insurrection that took place in our nation's capital uh, when compared to insurrection as a civically responsible form of social change? And how can we distinguish different kinds of insurrection and when insurrection could be justified? So this gets so tricky, of course, right? Because I open the book with the example of Shays' Rebellion, which is a violent rebellion in which my neighbors in Western Massachusetts um, rebel against Eastern Massachusetts, which is not paying soldiers for their service in the Revolutionary War and taxing them to the point where they lose their land. Um, so certainly in American history, we have seen even violent rebellion within the country. And the nation's founders were aware of the possibility that there might be violent rebellion. Uh, we, we have Thomas Jefferson famously saying, I think a little bit of rebellion now and again is a good thing. Um, you know, in fairness, Jefferson's pretty far away, right? So uh, he, he doesn't necessarily have the people who are raiding the armory in Springfield on his doorstep. Um, but there is this sort of sympathy fairly early on for this idea that in a democracy, there are going to be moments where people change the institutions and challenge the institutions that have been built and figure out how to go forward. Here is why I have a tough time drawing a straight line from Shay's rebellion to the Capitol on January 6th. I think the people who invaded the Capitol had mistrust used as a weapon. And what I mean by this is it's very rare to see a president take office and tell people to mistrust the system that he himself leads. Usually we see a political leader come into play and say, I've got my hands on the reins now. I need you to help me work with these institutions and get the changes that we need. That's really not what Donald Trump did with four years in office. What he did instead was say, everyone is against me, not just the media, but the deep state, the FBI, the Department of Justice, all of these different groups are somehow organized against me. And you need to be for me personally, and you need to trust my word for this. You can't trust all the other institutions there. Trump's rise to power was built on a substantial amount of organic mistrust. There's lots of people in America on the left and on the right for whom our particular moment in democracy and late stage capitalism is not working super well. 
But Trump grabbed that mistrust and sort of added, you know, four or five years of systemic lying on top of it to get to the point where he was able to use that mistrust to push people towards action. And and that's why um, I, I find myself trying to draw a distinction between the two. What's tricky, though, at the same time is that I do think we have to acknowledge that a strategy like Trump's is really only possible at a moment where mistrust is extremely high. If we had people across the board trusting many institutions, trusting government institutions, it would be very hard for Trump to make the argument that you can't trust the media, you can't trust the government, you can't trust anything else, you have to trust him. Um, that has a lot to do with the the environment that we find ourselves in right now. Ethan, I, I understand that building trust within institutions is probably a good thing. At what point is too much trust in our institutions potentially dangerous, if at all? Yeah, I, I'm not actually very much in the camp that says, let's rebuild trust in institutions. I'm much more in the camp of let's look at our institutions and see if they're worthy of our trust. And if they are not worthy of our trust, let's consider whether we can build different institutions. I do think it's very much worth our time and consideration to ask this question of, are the institutions worthy of our trust? And I think that <clears throat> one of the thinkers who was most influential to me in writing this book um, was a Fren French political philosopher, Pierre Rosenvallon, wrote a wonderful book called Le Contre-Democratie. And his point was dating from the French Revolution, the French vision of democracy has had a number of actors in a democratic system whose job it is to hold institutions responsible. That might be the job of media, that might be the job of public movements. It's a way of pressuring institutions and saying, look, if you are not doing the job you claim to be, we can oust you and sort of force you to be responsive to the people. And this was a, a solution um, really to a, a, a central problem in democracy, which is if we choose our leaders and then we have no other outcome other than choose differently the next time around, um, it's really a, a deeply disempowering process. So a lot of what this book celebrates are people who position themselves outside of institutions and try to find ways to hold them responsible through surveillance, watchful uh, behavior from below, um, through investigative journalism, through cop watching, through auditing. All of these different methods can be ways of pressuring those institutions to try to make them more accountable and to keep them stronger. So I worry in some ways that <clears throat> those very high levels of trust the U.S. government enjoyed in the 1960s, they may have actually reflected a moment of civic unhealth, uh, a moment where we simply weren't being critical enough of our institutions. We were being too blindly trusting. I think there is a tension between trusting blindly 
And the moment that we're in right now, where it's very, very hard for government, for instance, to do anything right, because the levels of trust are so low that no one actually wants to delegate those problems to governments. Um, and I think we have to look at those level over uh, those low levels of trust as helping to explain what's going on at a moment like uh, failure to address the pandemic. Yeah, your comments are actually very instructive for us at JMU Civic because we're working to encourage and promote participation in elections as part of our work, but we also are always asking the question of, well, what else can you do to be for participant in civic and political life. If the only thing a person can do is vote in elections, then that can be pretty deflating because it's not very much voice in this system. So I really appreciate you outlining ways in which people can get involved beyond voting to try to improve our democracy. Yeah, I think um, voting, unfortunately, is, is, a, is a pretty thin channel. Um, we know that, you know, not only is it a very light ask of people to vote every year, two years, four years, beyond that, by virtue of our primary system, the absence of ranked choice voting in, in most areas, um, voting often is, is choosing from a very constrained field. This is not to say that voting is not important. I do vote. I think it's very helpful to vote. Um, but I think limiting civic engagement to voting, trying to influence elected leaders and perhaps marching if you really don't like what's going on, I think that's a, an impoverished toolkit. And so a big part of what mistrust tries to do is recognize an expanded toolkit that's out there. And so one of the things that I end up arguing is that people who study social change tend to see change focused on law as the key lever of change. So either we want to pass legislation to make changes happen, or we want to win cases in court, and that's how change occurs. And, you know, that makes sense, right? Changes made through law have the force of the entire government behind them. Um, we remember the one county clerk who refused to certify gay marriages um, because otherwise, after the Oberfell decision, equal marriage was legal in the United States, right? That's an incredible amount of power. But the truth is making change through law is pretty disempowering for most citizens. Most of us are not lawyers. Most of us, uh, even if we are lawyers, don't have the chance to argue in front of the Supreme Court. Most of us are not legislators. But it turns out there's at least three other levers that people often have better access to. You can try to make change through markets, through trying to build and sell products that change the world in one fashion or another. <clears throat> We're seeing this right now uh, a great deal in the environmental space. We see it around rooftop solar panels. We see it around wind power. We see it around electric cars. These all become ways that either as producers or consumers, people are trying to use market measures to make a significant change. I talk a little bit about this idea of code, which is a word borrowed from my friend Larry Lessig, which he talks about how we regulate society. It can mean computer code. It can mean technology and architecture and design more broadly. But one of the key examples I use there is I talk about privacy. We have not seen mass movements in the United States defending privacy, despite revelations 
from folks like Edward Snowden. What we have seen, though, are code changes. We've seen tools like Signal, and we've seen um, Signal's software built into popular applications like WhatsApp that actually make it much, much harder for the FBI to surveil communications. And that's a really profound change. Those questions about federal government spying are very, very different thanks to that technological change. And then finally, we see the possibility of changing through changing norms, changing social norms, changing people's hearts and minds. And I think this is one of the places where particularly young people have been incredibly successful. I look at things like the kids involved with um, the kids who survived the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shootings and the ways in which they've used social media to try to change hearts and minds around issues like gun control, often with some real success. So one of the things that's quite wonderful is that social media seems to be a very strong tool for changing hearts and minds, for trying to reshape social norms. These all become things that individuals can do above and beyond sort of participating through what we might think of as the mainstream forms of civic participation. That's incredible for us. Um, you know, we, we, we all work with students regularly, who care very deeply about any number of public issues, looking for outlets, right? I think the narrative of the uh, disengaged, disenchanted, or self-indulgent young person doesn't really add up to the young people that we interact with. Instead, we interact with an incredible amount of young people who care very deeply, want to make change, but are looking are, are struggling to find outlets to do it in a meaningful and responsive way. Yeah, I saw the same thing at MIT. Um, there's a lot of discussion about a crisis in civics, this idea that young people have low test scores on civics exams when they even take civics exams. We're not teaching civics enough in the high school. And this tends to translate into this idea of young people don't care and they're not engaged. That doesn't track with the young people that I see and that I work with every day. Um, They tend to be enormously engaged. Their engagement is not always productive. Right. And, and so part of what mistrust focuses on is this idea of efficacy. How can you figure out as an individual how to make real change in the world? And the most powerful thing is feeling effective, feeling like you were actually able to change the world to one extent or another. Um, political scientists talk about this idea of internal and external efficacy. And what they mean by that is internally, do you know what you would need to do to change the world? And that that's really these questions like, um, do you know how the system works? Do you know how a bill becomes a law? So on and so forth. But it could also be, do you know how to use social media well? Do you know how to make something go viral? Do you know how to get people to participate in an online campaign? External efficacy is this idea that the institutions you are trying to influence are receptive to your influence. So when people talk about the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s, they describe a movement of people who had very high internal efficacy. 
civil rights leaders knew a great deal about how to organize, how to make change, but often very low external efficacy because many of the places they were trying to make change were incredibly resistant. I think that a lot of young people have very low external efficacy when it you know, affects things like systems based around law. You know, I think for most young people, the ideas of getting engaged in a political campaign, even if they know how to do it, they are justifiably skeptical that electing someone to Congress is actually going to lead to significant change. I think in part, we tell them that if they try to make change online, they're not doing something real. Instead, they're involved with slacktivism. They're wasting their time. I think helping people understand how to be efficacious and understand that sometimes making change online actually can be efficacious. Uh, I think those things are critical. So this was literally the subject of class this week. I am teaching civic learning and democratic engagement mm -hmm. for teachers this semester. Yep. And this was literally our subject this week. And we also had a discussion last night with a legislator who is also a civics teacher. And so in the class that I'm teaching this semester, the focus is much more on action civics mm. and critical yeah. civics versus traditional constitutionalism. Um, because I think this is a really, it's, it's, it is a debate and it's, but it's an important one because it's much harder. I mean, we do need to understand the constitution. We need to learn the constitution. We need to understand, um, you know, forms of government. Right. But that is not necessarily, um, that is not the only thing it, that we it's should be necessary, but on. not sufficient. Yes. Yes. In order to, yes. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's, I think that there's a real struggle though right now in curriculum around this. And I, I think, so I think the, you know, we can't just say that more civics is the answer because it is, what is the substance of what we're teaching? Yeah. I, I'm going to offer maybe an unkind analysis and you can pull me back from the edge. Um, if you feel like I'm, I'm going over, but I think people are very comfortable with teaching a constitutional model of civics because they know that it's not going to change anything. Um, they teach it the way that they might teach history, um, but they're not imagining students grabbing these to tools and using them. And they sort of also understand how challenging it would be for students to grab these tools and use them. I think it's much harder in some ways to teach action civics not because the students don't get it. The students get it entirely and, and they're thrilled about it because they really are interested in making change in the world. In many cases, the obstacles to teaching act, action civics are, um, you know, parents groups and groups that are worried about kids starting to get deeply engaged in political action that might lead to meaningful social change. Um, but for me, I think that's a great argument that that's something that we should center within our civics teaching. Um, and I think in many ways that teaching needs to learn from as well as, as teach to. Um, I'm finding that as much as I'm going in the classrooms and sort of illustrating 
examples of what I've seen as successful campaigns that use these different levels of change, successful campaigns that ask these hard questions about whether we should continue to support an institution or try to replace it, I am finding the best suggestions from my students and from campaigns that they are organizing, participating in, and leading. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, So this week, so Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act just turned 25. Uh, 230 has been called one of the most valuable tools for protecting freedom of expression and innovation on the internet. Um, For our listeners who may not be familiar with it, um, 230 says that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Um, So essentially what it does is it it, it shields sites from liability for illegal content. Um, But a lot of bad speech, you know, isn't, isn't illegal under other current laws. Um, It's, it's not illegal to claim COVID-19 as a hoax. Um, It's not illegal to claim that the election was stolen, unless of course that claim involves something like selling a scam or libeling a voting machine company. Um, It's not illegal to leave racist comments on social media posts um, or to wish cancer on somebody in an email um, unless, you know, there's persistent harassment of that person. Um, And it's also not illegal to ban users from a website or social media site for doing any of that, as we saw Twitter recently do in the case of the former president of the United States. I wonder if you can tell us how you are thinking about the roles of business, government, and civic society in answering some of these challenging questions that we're facing around Section 230 and around questions of speech and fostering a democratic and participatory internet and social media. Sure. Well, let me start by saying that I'm a big fan of 230. Um, I have this sort of unique perspective of having participated in the very early user-generated internet before 230, before other legislation that came out in 1996 that essentially made it possible to run websites that held user-generated content. Um, There really was a moment where everyone was trying to figure out, could we build a commercial web with user-generated content as a significant component, or were the liabilities simply too large? And 230 was part of a a number of um, legislative changes that made much of what we know as the modern internet possible. At the same time, it's certainly true that there are platforms out there that have been used for really, truly terrible purposes and have shielded themselves with 230. Um, One of the cases that sort of helped persuade me that the people who were trying to get rid of 230 or change 230 were not completely off base um, are cases where services like Grindr and other dating services have been used to harass people. Um, Where, for instance, someone's ex, you know, fakes a profile on Grindr uh, and sends an endless flood of people to that person's house. Um, that's clearly harassment. It's clearly sexual harassment, 
but it's very hard to stop without the cooperation of the platform. And Grinder, in this case, you know, simply refused to do anything to stop the behavior, which is really pretty reprehensible. What I will say is that I am seeing something of a shift in how platforms understand their role in the world. Until pretty recently, most platforms would answer questions about online speech by saying, we want as much speech as possible. And that's started to shift. It started to shift with the deplatforming of Alex Jones and essentially saying, look, no one really wants to have this person who is inciting violence against parents who lost their children at Sandy Hook School uh, on their platform. There's just no reason for this. We then saw a wave this summer in which what you might think of as the public health version of the internet became more prominent. You saw platforms blocking things like the pandemic video, uh, which was essentially advocating for a bunch of conspiracy theories about um, COVID being created um, by the government as a form of thought control. Um, and, and platforms are actually very good at aggressively taking that down. And I think we can now see more evidence of platforms working to fight voter suppression and ultimately um, a willingness to take down President Trump while he was still president. Um, my friend Jonathan Zittrain over at Harvard Law School makes this argument that we've gone from a paradigm of free speech at all costs to a paradigm where we are being more thoughtful about these public health effects. Is that enough? Having these platforms voluntarily make this change? No, absolutely not. Um, but I worry that some of the remedies that are being proposed could be worse than the problem. Asking platforms to get more aggressive about enforcing speech has all sorts of problems. You make unelected heads of services extremely powerful. Um, handling this out to a regulatory agency has lots of problems as well. We don't really like the idea in the United States of the government having significant control of our speech. And so in the long run, what I'm really hoping for is a differently structured social internet where we have many, many more online communities. And those communities are actually governed by the people who participate in them. So rather than outsourcing our questions about what is acceptable speech and what is acceptable behavior and asking Facebook to hire an army of content moderators in the Philippines armed with three ring binders, we actually need a world of social media where people are having conversations about what is acceptable behavior in their own communities. That's the work that I'm doing at UMass right now is trying to imagine and build these new communities. It's a long process. And in the meantime, you probably will see more aggressive enforcement, more aggressive deplatforming, because we need to do something in the meantime. Uh, I, I wanted to go on and push this point a little bit more because this is very interesting. And you had to do it had to do with your previous answer of self-policing internet communities. We've seen, you know, Reddit in the news lately, um, and how those are kind of akin to what you've already described. But I wanted to ask uh, what do you see as the most promising practices for reimagining reimagining the internet 
And what are the possibilities for a civic social media? <clears throat> well, let, let's stop by start by actually talking about Reddit. Um, Reddit is so funny because it only makes the news when it does something crazy, right? And so Reddit's been in the news lately because Wall Street bets this um, anarchic community of um, stock traders and, and, and really stock gamblers, I think many of them would tell you, um, managed to create a stock market bubble and, and in some cases profit from it, perhaps at the expense of hedge funds. Um, so that's kind of cool and kind of fun. There's uh, really um, fascinating sort of dynamics around it. The truth is there are thousands of communities within Reddit, and many of them are actually very high-functioning communities. And some of the ones that are the most high-functioning have very clear rules of the road and have very strong teams of volunteer moderators who enforce those rules of the road. Um, R slash science um, is a terrifically rigorous community in which people post and discuss peer-reviewed scientific papers in which you basically can't post anything unless you're citing another peer-reviewed paper and where more than a thousand moderators maintain the space and sort of ensure conversation is happening in some way. So we know that there are ways in which even apparently anarchic spaces like Reddit can actually be governed surprisingly well. We have other examples like Front Porch Forum, um, a local social network based in Vermont that uses all sorts of affordances to try to ensure that their community doesn't end up in racism and racial profiling the way that many next door groups have ended up. And I've spent a lot of time talking to the founder there. They really do things very differently. When you post to Front Porch Forum, your post won't go up for 24 hours. Uh, and that's so that human beings can review it. And so that if you're angry and out of line, you might have a chance to edit your words or that moderator might have the chance to say, do you really want to say that? Do you really want to make that point that way? Um, these are models that are very, very different from what we're used to doing. And the main thing about these models is that they are built around moderation. They don't try to avoid it. One of the big problems with existing social networks is that moderating content is a cost center. If Facebook can simply moderate more content and pay less for it, they will always choose to do that. And they will choose to do that because it doesn't gain them any benefit. But what it means is that we are participating in a community whose rules we don't know, whose rules we don't vote on, and the enforcement of those rules we don't really have clear authority and oversight over. That's something we would not accept in a real-world political system. But we accept it in our digital spaces because that's the model that we evolved to have. And, and so for me, civically responsible spaces start by building spaces where you have a civic responsibility. They are much smaller spaces. They're probably spaces of between 20 and 20,000 people rather than trying to serve 2.7 billion people. There is no such thing as a community of 2.7 billion people. There never has been. There might be communities of 20,000 people. There probably are communities of 2,000 people. 
But those communities require people to stand up and take responsibility for their governance. So think much smaller. Think networks that might have a specific purpose. They're not trying to be everything to everyone. They're trying to host specific conversations. And they have affordances and norms that lead us to those conversations. Uh, And that the people who use those spaces um, are also responsible for the governance of those spaces. Those are the big changes we need um, to get to the point where we have spaces for civic discourse um, within social media. Ethan, in one of your recent blog posts entitled Fixing Disinformation Won't Save Us, you mentioned that you, quote, think we're trying to fix social media in part because it's too hard and too scary to fix our political system. How do we go about addressing the systemic prevalence of misinformation while avoiding the low-hanging fruit? I think I would probably push back and say that I think we're obsessed with misinformation because it was an elegant explanation for people's surprise in 2016. Two deeply surprising things happened in 2016 in global politics. One was Brexit. The other was the election of Donald Trump. And you saw a wave of interest in this idea that misinformation was rampant and that people were horrifically misinformed. And that's why weird things were happening. So here's why that explanation is so appealing. First, it's really appealing because if the problem is misinformation, then we just write algorithms or we deploy an army of fact checkers or we regulate media and we squeeze the myths and disinfo out of the system and politics works again. A much more uncomfortable way of thinking about this is actually a lot of Americans wanted to elect Donald Trump and a lot of Brits wanted to leave uh, the, the EU. Um, and maybe they're misinformed or maybe they have very different preferences than we do. Looking at this now again in 2021, I think we have to recognize that if it is an information problem, it is not entirely an online information problem. So consider the Stop the Steal movement. We had a majority of elected Republicans take votes in Congress that indicated a willingness to overturn what appears to be a legitimate and fair election. That can't just be an informational problem. That's a power problem. We now have a political party that has really aligned itself with a particular disinformation narrative. And at this point, it's not just a matter that that narrative is winging its way around the internet. Uh, The problem is coming from within the House, and in this case, from within the House and within the Senate. Um, We are seeing that lie, and it is a lie, come from one of our two major political parties. And at that point, I don't feel like simply cleaning up the internet can solve this problem. Instead, there have to be some real political consequences um, for the idea that one party is essentially trying to overthrow majority rule. Um, So I 
I think this is a really terrifying moment in American politics. I think it's a moment that has come from an enormous number of institutional failures. I think gerrymandering, I think the ways the primary system works, um, I think rural overrepresentation and urban underrepresentation. I think these are all deep institutional flaws that need to be corrected. But the idea that somehow it's Facebook's responsibility from rescuing us from this mess, that to me just seems sort of absurd on its face. And, and I think we just need to be much more modest about what problems we can and cannot solve by dealing with mis- and disinformation. We've been talking with Ethan Zuckerman. He is author of the new book, Mistrust, Why Losing Faith in Institutions Provides the Tools to Transform Them. Ethan, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Um, I know we could go on for, for hours talking with you. This has just been such a wonderful and insightful conversation. But we asked this question of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Well, I'll tell you what I am doing to strengthen democracy, which is I do think that having digital spaces where we can have debates about our future, having digital spaces where we meet our neighbors, whether or not we agree with their political views, digital spaces where we are encouraged to interact with people we disagree with, I think all of those things are important. And so I'm going to work to research and build those spaces. Drawn more broadly, what I would suggest is you don't have to participate in civics the way that people say you have to participate in civics. You don't have to vote. You don't have to write to your congressperson. What you do have to do is look at the world, look at problems that you care about and that you feel like you could have a hand in changing and you need to work hard to figure out how to actually be effective in making change around this. So it's fine to have high mistrust in institutions. It's fine to say that I'm going to detach from certain visions of institutional civics, but it's not okay to sit on the sidelines. And so, you know, people's job is to figure out what's the right way for them personally to get off the sidelines. What, what, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. Uh, Thank you, Abe. Um, Thank you, Ryan. It's, it's really just been uh, lovely to have the chance to talk with you. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time. 